For the next hour, you'll be leaving the show me state and entering the show me the money state. So stop what you're doing, grab a pen, and get ready to learn. Because you're tuned to the Ozarks' number one show about your money. Randy and Jake Floyd of Floyd Financial Group will be your guides for straight talk and honest answers about living the life you deserve in retirement. So prepare to be empowered. Now, here are your show me the money hosts, Randy Floyd, Jake Floyd, and Jeff Shade. Good morning and welcome to Show Me the Money with Randy and Jake Floyd, the radio show that gives you the straight talk and honest answers you need to reach your wealth management and retirement goals through smart investing and careful planning. My name is Jeff Shade and as always, I'm just here to ask the questions for you. But of course, the words of wisdom and solid advice come from Randy and Jake Floyd at Floyd Financial Group. I'll start with you, Randy. How are you doing this morning? Doing very well, Jeff. How about you? I am doing fantastic. And Jake, how's this Saturday morning finding you? I'm doing great, Jeff. Thank you for asking. You are certainly welcome, my friends. We've got a lot to talk about on today's show and really appreciative of everybody joining us each and every Saturday morning right here on 104.1 KSGF, where Springfield comes to talk. You were mentioning something, Jake, that I thought inflation was going down to a point where we could stand it a little bit here, but it seems like it's creeping back up again. What do you make of that? Yeah, last week in the numbers, Jeff, there was some reports that, you know, prices are starting to creep back up a little bit. Sales are still high. You know, last month's CPI numbers started to go up for the first time in a year. And so, you know, there's a lot of people that thought we kind of had defeated inflation, if you will, and and it's showing that that's not the case. The average consumer is maxed out on credit and is uh, speeding toward the brick wall at 100 miles an hour with their foot on the gas. Yeah, that is not a good thing. And I don't understand that, though. People are maxing out credit cards, but yet they're beginning to run up more credit cards. As you said, this is a recipe for disaster. What is it going to take before they actually hit this brick wall? I don't think they're going to stop until they have to. And they'll have to when they run out of credit or they lose their job or something like that. And I think, you know, that's the one part of this whole thing that has yet to give, which is the jobs market. You know, the jobs market, we keep having very strong job growth, very strong employment, and, you know, way more jobs available than there are people to fill them. And so until that starts to correct, you know, I think the Fed is going to have to continue to hike rates. You know, I think there's a lot of people, including myself, that thought they might be done after the last one, but it doesn't show signs of slowing down. You know, I think a lot of people are like, well, you know, soon the Fed will lower interest rates and get us kind of back down to where we used to be. The Fed is not going to do that until they have to. So be careful what you wish for, as the Chinese say, right? If you want that to happen, what you're ultimately asking for is a pretty big recession. And so it's kind of one or the other. Either you have a recession, interest rates come down, or interest rates go up and stay up until we do. Yeah, and you know, Jeff, we just got the report earlier this week. Retail sales were very strong, up seven-tenths of a percent month over month. And so when that's happening, when sales are up and profits are going up, you know, one other thing I hadn't mentioned here is the fact that they were talking about import prices have been down and were down another, what was it, another 6% down, I think, overall. So here's the thing, not not that it's negative 6, but it's just down from where it was at the high, where it was up over 10, you know, running several months there. So here's what's happening right now. We got companies that even though they had forecasted lower and slower sales, they're buying things cheaper. And guess what they're not doing at this point? Passing it passing all, all yeah. that back to the client. Client right. because they're not sure either. They're trying to hedge their numbers because all CEOs and regional managers have to do what? They got to make their numbers each month or they pack their bags and hit the highway. So there's a whole lot going on here. And I think also I've alluded to this one time before, and I've talked to several people across the country that have kind of confirmed this. Boomers had a really good run from March of 09 through February of 2020 and have made some solid money. And I think they're propping up their kids to some extent. And I think that's helping to keep things going and keeping the accelerator pedal just pressed down. So also Jerome Powell was supposed to be reducing the balance sheet at $95 billion a month. And guess what? That ain't happening either. In fact, the money supply is now back up. So that's what's keeping this thing going right now. So we were talking last week and uh, in weeks prior to this about the fact that we might have a soft landing or a mild recession, and we were making progress towards that, but now it seems that we've made a turn, maybe not exactly a complete 180-degree U-turn, but things are heading in the wrong direction. Do you think that things are going to continue to head in the wrong direction? And I know that we don't have a crystal ball, but what's your really gut feeling about this? 
I think, as Jake said, you know, there is going to be a reckoning day. Problem that we get into is, you know, shopping for and spending money for people. <laughs> this is going to sound horrible. It's a, it's a form of dope or dopamine. Right. They right. go out, they buy the new car. It's pretty awesome until they make the payment. They go out <laughs> and then they buy yeah. the new Rolex. They buy the new house. They buy the new boat. You know, all those sorts of things. Yeah. But, you know, people are kind of hooked on dope, uh, the dopamine of spending money right now. And so... Uh, that will come to a head at some point because eventually people will run out of credit and run out of the ability to make their payments. Totally off topic, but I will say I saw an article last week uh, about something known as girl math. Hmm. And so this is the idea of where these ladies go shopping, and when they find something expensive, what they do is they divide the price into how many times they think they will wear it or use it, and then they look <laughs> at the price that way instead. And so if they have a $1,500 Versace handbag, as long as they use it at least 100 times, it's only $15 per use, and then they feel better about it. I think, I think I like that's, that. that's really smart yeah uh, i'm not sure it's good for the pocketbook but it's uh you know you have to justify it i guess somehow but yeah i think there's a lot of justification that has to be going on people are spending so much more than they have right now and you know we're also going to see i think one of the things we haven't talked a lot about on the show that's that's a huge deal is student loan payments are coming back in you know a lot of people haven't had to make any student loan payment for a long time now and and a lot of these people are going to come back and it's going to be $500,000 a month maybe between couples for the average person i mean that could be 10 maybe even 20% of their take home pay depending on you know what we're talking about i mean that would be uh, a huge sucking sound out of the spending economy so that's another thing that we kind of have our eyes on right now yeah i know people that are in their 50s and they still got seventy thousand dollars in student loans and as you said they had a reprieve on those but uh, those are going to be coming back and that is greatly going to affect how they live their lives but you know i don't understand it when uh, credit seems to tighten like this and really you should be doing one thing the american consumer they just do the other i have no idea what that's about running up debt like that we're talking with randy and jake here floyd finance Group. We're talking about current events. Another thing I wanted to point out here or mention was the ongoing saga of bank failures is continuing. What do you know about that? Yeah, Jeff, you know, the Heartland Tri-State Bank in Kansas failed last month. We found out about it, you know, basically last weekend, but there was some kind of scam they had going on that contributed, but ultimately it's more just bank weakness. This was, a again, a very small bank. You know, if you blink when you went past it, it was gone. I think they only had like four branches, but the FDIC had to step in, and then they ultimately uh, ended up kind of giving the assets over to another bank to run, and it's nobody lost a dime, nobody had any of their obligations change, you know, I mean, there's nothing to do about it. But I think it's interesting when we're monitoring the banks, we need to pay attention to even these small ones, because they can tell us a lot about what's going on. And I think, you know, Fitch and Moody's, as we've talked about the last couple of weeks, have been downgrading both banks and United States government debt. Fitch came out again last week and put a bunch of banks on notice, including JP Morgan and some other huge banks that a lot of people would say are beyond reproach. You know, so it could get interesting here. Again, if you're listening to the show and you've been listening to it for a while, you'll know that this is something I talk about almost every week and have for the last three, four, five months. And that's because this this whole banking thing is not over. And the banks better hope that we have a recession because if we don't, we're going to keep raising interest rates. And that puts these banks in a really bad position that ultimately is going to result in heightened regulation and banks having to be bailed out potentially, depending on what happens. Again, I want to, I do want to take this moment though, to say, you know, if you have money in a bank, don't panic. The Fed has, has shown that they are going to backstop these banks and do whatever's necessary to maintain liquidity. So I'm not saying you need to go take your money out of a bank right now. All I'm saying is that the market may not like it very much if some of these banks start to really show weakness over the next month or two. And I was surprised about the Heartland Tri-State Bank because, you know, we started this whole conversation with Silicon Valley Bank out in California. And, you know, that was almost understandable being the sort of bank that they are. But boy, when you get down to these small mom and pop banks, like you said, that if you blink when you drive by, you'll miss it. That becomes disturbing. But as you said, you know, not to worry that federal government has a way to bail out these banks and that your money should be safe. So I think we need to back up just a little bit, Jeff, and help people to understand that the Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, our Fed chairman there, is probably 
in a lot of ways, as much responsible for the bank failures as anybody. And the reason is he has taken interest rates in the last, what's in March, about the last 18 months, he's taken interest rates from zero, which is what banks paid to borrow money, to five and a quarter percent. And what that has done is, you know, looking back over our shoulder, we had tremendously low interest rates for a very long time. We had treasuries at less than 1% back in August of 2020 and hanging around, you know, one and two, two and a half percent for a very long time. And so what happens when these banks make long-term commitments in bonds and all of a sudden short-term bonds are paying twice and three times and sometimes four times as much as they can get by holding their long-term debt, they say, hey, we'd like to have our money. Well, then when the banks go and try to sell 2% debt, when people can buy short-term 5% debt, guess what? They have to sell it at a discount. Therefore, and the depositor can demand his money, and he should be able to, and when the bank has to go raise capital, they have to sell at a discount, and then they're short the money, and the Federal Reserve or the FDIC has to come in and prop us up. So all we're going to do here is add more to the debt, ultimately. And as if we do not have enough debt right now, I think the federal debt is what I remember. Ronald Reagan was kind of disgusted talking about the federal deficit was in the billions of dollars. But what is it today? What is it approximately today? Currently, Jeff, the number is thirty two point seven trill. Wow. Trillion. That's short for trillion. <laughs> trillion with a T. That is amazing. And isn't yeah. there a debt clock or something that you can look at online which shows you how much it's ticking up on a regular basis? Yeah, I wouldn't recommend looking at it too long if you like sleeping <laughs> at night just because it's a little disturbing to look at the amount of spending going on, especially when you consider what Congress and the idiot in the White House are spending it on. Uh, it's very stomach-turning. That is amazing. You know, as a person who keeps track of their own finances, I think that if I saw a number that big, it would just be impossible to overcome that. So what is it going to take before the United States government overcomes a figure that big? I mean, can we overcome that in our lifetime? What's it going to really take to get out of this mess? So um, it's really going to take basically three things. Number one, we have to incentivize business and continue to grow the economy and the GDP. A lot of people say that trickle-down economics doesn't work. You know, those people are the ones getting propped up by it. The other thing I would say is we have to maintain low interest rates is number two. If we do not refinance this debt at a low interest rate soon, we will have to refinance it at current interest rates, which could be as much as four or five times increase on the debt. That's a huge, huge problem. So we need to get interest rates back down at some point so that we can refinance the debt. And then number three is we have to stop spending money on stupid crap. If we don't absolutely need it, it should go. We have government that's 20 times as big as the founding fathers intended it to be, and we're just adding to it on a daily basis. And so we have to get somebody that's going to come in and start chopping things off of this humongous monster of a government. Well, Jake and Randy, I'm sure that our listeners have questions about our topics today, and uh, I'm sure that they're looking for answers about what's going to happen here in the country as far as current events go and how it affects them and their finances. If our listeners need answers, then I want them to request their no cost, no obligation, no judgment Floyd Financial Group Retirement Review by calling 417-889-7233. That's 417-889-7233. Now, when you call, you're going to get a friendly voice on the other end of the line. More than likely, it's going to be Ashley, who will gather some basic information from you, then set you up with a conversation with Jake or Randy to create a path towards a successful retirement. Now, remember, it's not going to cost you a dime, but it could uncover some blind spots that, when addressed, may help you improve your quality of life in a retirement that could last, get this, as long as 30-plus years. Once again, call 417-889-7233, 417-889-7233, and be sure to request your complimentary consultation online at floydfinancialgroup.com. It is floydfinancialgroup.com. Once again, no cost, no obligation, and no judgment. Time for a break, gentlemen. When we come back here on Show Me the Money, we're going to begin a conversation about 13 ways to invest that don't involve the stock market. All that and more when our show continues here on one of 4.1 FM KSGF, where Springfield comes to talk. Ready for another helping of some more real money talk? Thought so. Now, here's another serving of Show Me the Money 
with your hosts, Randy and Jake Floyd with Jeff Shade. Welcome back, everybody. This is Randy and Jake. You're listening to Show Me the Money. And in this segment, we're going to be talking about 13 ways to invest that do not involve the stock market. And Randy, you know, when people think of investing, they usually start by looking at the stock market. But there are a lot of other ways to invest your savings than just stocks or even mutual funds and exchange traded funds. In fact, diversifying your portfolio with investments that aren't correlated to how the stock market performs or even negatively correlated is usually a wise course to take. So let's kick it off here with the first of 13 ways to invest that don't involve the stock market. And the first one is real estate investment trusts or what we like to call REITs. Yeah, so when it comes to REITs, a real estate investment trust is a situation where people will come together. Uh, usually there's an investment firm that promotes a product. Say they're going to build a hospital or they might build apartment complex or office buildings or a data center. And so they have agents that go out and try to find money. They find money from mom and pops to uh, businesses to other places like that. And so the investment is packaged and that money goes to work. And usually there's a distribution. A lot of REITs run seven to 10 years. And then at the end, they sell it and then try to give you your money back. That's the idea. The big issue that I have with REITs is when you go to buy something, let's say uh, a car or you buy something for your farm or something like that, what you want to do is go to the wholesaler if you can, or as close to the wholesaler as you can get, right? Because every person, every salesperson between you and the manufacturer has to do what? They have to get paid. Right. And so if the manufacturer manufactures it, then it goes to the next guy who sells it to a dealership who sells it to you. There are now three people getting paid with your money. In a real estate investment trust, there are often five or six parties that get paid before Hmm. you do between you and the actual investment. So the idea of a REIT can be very good, but the reality of a REIT usually leads to disappointment. There's another version of this called a DST or a Delaware Statutory Trust, which is kind of a a REIT by a different name. And there are some differences, but when you hear of DSTs or REITs, you're looking at the same basic structure of investment. Now with the Delaware Statutory Trust, you have tax advantages. You can kick the tax can down the road and we won't get into all the details here, but how does it work with the REITs? Are there any tax advantages? So the big thing with DST is that it's basically a REIT that you can use as a 1031 exchange. And so a lot of people out there that have had dealing with land and things like that might recognize that part of the tax code. A 1031 exchange allows you to sell a property, what we call dirt for dirt, meaning real estate for real estate. So if you sell a piece of land and it's highly appreciated, you would most likely owe taxes on the appreciation. However, if you set it up right and you do it ahead of time and you dot all the T's and cross all the I's, as I like to say, (laughs) then you can move that to another piece of land and defer those taxes. If as long as you set it up right, again, it's not just as simple as going out and buying another piece of land with that money. You have a time limit and a lot of other things. But if you do it right, you can do a 1031 exchange and not have to pay those taxes right away. And the DST takes an advantage of that to where you have a commercially packaged investment, but it is still able to take advantage of the 1031. So if you have like a big piece of farmland, that kind of thing where the taxes would be absolutely gargantuan, it's very highly appreciated, then the fact that the underlying investment, again, in my opinion, is less than awesome, may not matter because you're saving so many dollars in taxes. And one thing I might add in there, Jeff, too, is the fact that as you look at these setups and things, you have to, it's kind of like looking at stocks in the stock market. Just because somebody's going to go build a building on that corner over there doesn't mean it's going to work out. Right. And <laughs> so- I'm sure I'm sure there are some good REITs out there. I've just never seen one in my 17 years of history here. Every time somebody brings me a REIT, they want to get rid of it. They have lost their butts in it to <laughs> not put too fine a point on it. And right. at the very best, they might have made 4 or 5% and lost a little bit of principal along the way. And so, again, I'm sure there's probably some that have exceeded that. But everyone I come across, traded publicly, privately, you also have liquidity constraints and things like that that are to be considered. So, yeah, yeah. that's good. There's two, you know, levels or two subsets of real estate investment trusts. Generally, most of them start off private and sometimes they get taken public. And mm-hmm. so, sometimes they do pretty well if they get taken public. But for the most Part, they do not get taken public. And if you want to sell that inside the seven to 10 year term, you have to find the buyer or you have to hire somebody on the secondary market to find you a buyer. And our experience has 
has been 25 to 50% of what you paid is what you get back. Or you're just stuck, which is what most people right. do is they just, they can't figure out how to get rid of it. And so they just hold it in perpetuity until it finally liquidates uh, at the end of its life. Yeah. It's sort of like those timeshare things for that 30 minutes you're in that sales meeting. It sounds pretty good, but you regret it about 40 minutes later. And then you get these timeshare exit teams. I wonder if there'll be a REIT exit team now. Somebody come up with that. I don't know. But anyway, oh, trust me, there is already. There is, they're they're uh, out there. You there just, oh, yeah. Really? I didn't know that. Okay. I was just kind of making uh, that up. That's the seventh person getting making money out of your portion. <laughs> so I take it that we're not totally positive on REITs as another way to make money outside of the stock market. Let's move on to the second one here, and that is going to be peer-to-peer lending. What's that all about? Yeah, Jeff. So peer-to-peer lending, when you open your mailbox and a cascade of envelopes falls out of it, it's most likely that 70% of those or more are Mm -hmm. personal loan solicitations to you, or at least if your mailbox is like mine. Right. Peer-to-peer lending is where you are the person supplying the money Hmm. to fund those loans in a lot of cases. And so what happens is these companies, they offer these loans, but they're not paying for it with their money. They're simply paying somebody else 4%, 4%, charging you 8%, and pocketing the difference. And that's the basics of how peer-to-peer lending works. You can fund, in some of these programs, very little amounts of money if you want to. Again, my concern here is going to be liquidity and flexibility, because once you do this, you, you're kind of bound to the way you set it up and the contractual obligation between the company and to the individual that's actually borrowing the money. So you need to be very careful about understanding your liquidity, and that's going to vary widely from program to program. It could be that they uh, some offer better liquidity. I would suspect that those would be the ones that pay you less interest. You know, if you're directly loaning it to other people, then you're going to be very illiquid. You may make a little better return. Again, this is an option. I don't know that the average investor probably has any business doing this just because there's too many technical things to worry about and liquidity concerns. And I'm not sure that the reward is worth the potential risk. So I'm going to put a thumbs down on that one along with Real Estate Investment Trust. We've got thumbs down on number one and number just two. keep your thumbs down out because we're <laughs> just going to keep going. <laughs> okay. Well, my thumb is in the middle now. It's ready to go either down or up. Let's talk about savings bonds. I have a feeling that that could be maybe a thumb sideways. What do you think? You know, savings bonds, are the thing about them is they're safe, right? They're tax deferred until you cash them in. You're not always going to get the very best interest rate, you know, because again, they're really safe. You know, generally when you take more risk, you get more reward, but you got to make sure that you are staying within the risk profile that you can stand both financially and psychologically so that you can sleep at night, right? Yeah. Is the thing. But savings bonds are safe overall, and there's nothing wrong with them except for the fact that you just are going to generally get a mediocre amount of interest. It gets tax deferred, but eventually when you cash them in, you will pay on the interest that you have collected there. And generally they run, you know, depending on what kind of bond you buy, you're going to run somewhere between five and 30 years. And the vast majority of them are going to run 30 years. They're double E bonds and things like that. So I think one thing to point out too, is like the I bond has been very popular lately because inflation has been running high. And so the series I bond, as it would suggest, stands for, I don't know if it actually stands for inflation, but we can just put it in there because that's basically what it does is it floats on top of inflation. And so based on what the consumer price index is doing, you're going to get more interest or less interest based on that. So they've been incredibly popular. Now, one thing to keep in mind is that you can only buy $10,000 per person per entity per year. And so, you know, if you have a few hundred thousand dollars you want to put in I-bonds, you're going to be found wanting because you're not going to be able to do that. And by the way, Jeff, the the I-bonds are recalculated every six months as to what inflation is doing and those rates will change and you know if you don't hold them at least five years you're going to pull out if you pull out early you're going to give up a quarter's interest so i'm going to put a thumb sideways on that when they are safe but they do have their detriments we're talking about 13 ways to invest that do not involve the stock market with randy jake floyd floyd financial group the next one is gonna be gold we've talked about it before what do you think about that well sometimes gold doesn't glitter that's right (laughs) so I know. And there's fool's gold, too. I used to have that when I was a kid. 
So, you know, gold is always going to have value. Is it stable? No, we know that every day it's up, down, sideways. I think my biggest problem with buying spot gold or actually having gold is the fact that when you buy it, you pay a commission. When you sell it, you pay a commission. You never know exactly when to buy or sell. And if you're looking for it for a retirement vehicle to draw income from, it becomes very difficult to use. Now, there are some other ways to get into buying gold. That's through, you know, gold mining companies and that sort of thing. But all of a sudden, now we're right back to the stock market, right? So, right. Yeah, I think also lumping in with gold, maybe we should just call this whole thing precious metals. Right. Because there's, you know, silver, right. there's palladium, platinum, you know, rhodium even. Um, there's a lot of different metals out there. I would say that the metals market will always be around. You know, I think gold historically has been a pretty good inflation hedge. It didn't work super good this time around. It was kind of okay, but gold should probably be a lot higher based on where inflation is now. But yeah, I, I totally agree with Randy. I think the commission in and out of gold is very prohibitive for the average person. Gold does not pay income. And most people need income off their money. Not everybody does, but most people in retirement need to take some income. And short of hacking off part of your bar of gold, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's not going to put money in your bank account. I don't have any real big problem with gold. If you have a lot of gold, I'm not saying to sell it. I'm just saying that transacting in gold is fairly difficult. Silver is a little bit easier because it's easier to denominate because it's just simply a lot less per ounce. So does Walmart take gold? I don't think uh, so. Not yet, I don't think. No. Uh, they take the Visa gold card. But, yeah, they uh, do. Yeah, no, no actual gold, I don't think. But I do think that where gold shines... If, if you will, <laughs> um, is if you if you do like the precious metals and you want to put a considerable amount of money there, you can store gold in a fairly small space versus silver. You know, if you buy a few hundred thousand dollars worth of silver, you better have a, a semi truck to drive it around in. I mean, right. it's not quite that extreme, but it, it does weigh quite a lot, takes up a lot of space, and you have to make arrangements to have it delivered. I actually, I have a client who is in the gold industry, and basically he was telling me some of the stories about how how they have to transport large amounts of gold. So if a client or somebody wants to buy a million dollars worth of gold, they have to arrange transport for that. And so they have like an armored car drive across the country with this gold in it. And they take different routes and they have to check in every 20 minutes and all this kind of thing. To me, it doesn't seem like it's worth the hassle. Again, if I had a safe full of gold, I would not go out and sell it. But at the same time, I'm not rushing out to buy gold either. Oh, it's sort of a novelty. I mean, to have it and hold it in your hand, it's great to look at and go, wow, you know, I've got this gold. But when it comes down to it, as you've said before, Randy, I mean, you can't shave off a sliver of a Krugerrand over at the come and go gas station and get some gasoline with that or down at the high V. Not terribly liquid, not necessarily a hedge against the end of times, because in the end of times, I think I'd rather have food and bullets than I would have gold. So we're going to put a thumb sideways on gold. We're talking about 13 ways that you can invest in the stock market that do not involve stock. If you have questions about this particular topic, you want to get in with Randy and Jake and talk about it. Once again, we're offering a no cost, no obligation, no judgment retirement review with Randy and Jake at Floyd Financial Group. To get yours, call 417-889-7233, 417-889-7233. Just a friendly conversation in a no tie zone with Randy and or Jake to talk about your individual situation and design a plan to get you to and through retirement. Again, not going to cost you a dime, 417-889-7233. You can also request yours online at floydfinancialgroup.com. Time for a break, gentlemen. When we come back, we'll continue to talk about 13 ways to invest that do not involve the stock market and more when our show continues here on 104.1 FM KSGF, where Springfield comes to talk. Ready to climb a mountain of financial know-how? Good. Because it's time for more Show Me the Money with your financial Sherpas, Randy and Jake Floyd. Welcome back to Show Me the Money. I'm Jake Floyd. In this segment, we're going to continue talking about 13 ways to invest that don't involve the stock market. We talked about REITs, peer-to-peer lending, bonds, gold, and now we're going to talk about CDs. And CDs, Certificates of Deposit. I remember my uh, parents had Certificates of Deposit. They were quite proud of those because they were getting a reasonable rate of return. Then the rate of return just sort of went through the floor a little bit. We were getting, you know, not even 1%, but they bounced back a little bit. What's the long and short of CDs these days? Yeah, so CD rates are fairly high right now as long as you're going for a short term. So six month, nine month, maybe even 12 month or close to 5%. Uh, six month may be even closer to five and a half here shortly, but 
this is the first time CDs have paid any interest in 15 years. You know, the last 18 months or so is when they first started kind of paying interest. The issue I have with CDs is you can get liquid money that pays almost as much, either through a money market mutual fund or uh, if you have a good bank relationship, there's banks out there that'll pay five plus percent on a money market. So I'm not sure about the time commitment on the CDs. The other part of it is if you go out the duration curve, right? So if we go six month, nine month, 12 month, it's good. If you try to buy a five year, it's paying like 1%. Right. Banks, And so because of that, and we, we talked a lot about this last week, I know, Jeff, but because of that, I'm not sure that CDs, there's nothing wrong with CDs. I'm just not sure it's a great time to tie money up in CDs when we can get close to that yield in a totally liquid investment. So the advantage of CDs is that they're safe, but the disadvantage is that they do not pay a lot of interest. And also they're not terribly liquid, are they? Right. So uh, liquidity wise, you know, is going to vary from bank to bank as far as what it costs to get in and out of them. If you try to sell them early, that kind of thing. I also don't know about tying money up because this market may get, you know, bad for a short period, but ultimately we're going to want to take advantage of that volatility. I don't want to be tied up where I can't put my money to work. So that's, that's kind of where we're at on CDs right now. So I'm going to make this one sort of a thumb sideways. I mean, so far we've got a couple of down thumbs, some sideways thumbs, and we're still waiting for an up thumb here. So let's move on and keep our fingers crossed for corporate bonds. What do you make of those? Yeah, so I think corporate bonds could get a thumbs up here. I think there are times where bonds are not as good like last year, but by and large, it's a good way to diversify a little bit from the stock market in a brokerage account where you have liquid money and that kind of thing. Bonds tend to displace volatility that you get in the stock market as long as you're careful with what bonds you're buying, right? So the bonds are only as good as the company you're buying them from. And so as long as we're careful with the quality of the company that we're buying them from, you know, interest rates are still in the CDs range right now, but Corporate bonds are incredibly liquid. The corporate bond market is actually larger than the stock market, or I should say the total bond market is larger than the total stock market, not just corporates. But yeah, so I mean, it's very good place to invest money and a good way to diversify a brokerage account or an IRA that you have at a brokerage firm. So I'm going to put a thumbs up on corporate bonds. And as you said, I found this hard to believe, but it is true that uh, bonds make up the largest part of the investment sector, even above the stock market. So let's move on now to the next one, and that would be commodities futures. So first of all, define what a commodity really is. So I would say there might be as many as four or five people listening to this show that might have any business uh, (laughs) investing in commodities futures. (laughs) So commodities futures are incredibly volatile. What happens in a commodities future is you are buying a commodity. So corn to beef to oil to whatever, lumber, whatever it may be. You're agreeing to buy it in the future at a current price today. And so you're kind of gambling that prices will go up in most cases if you're on the buying side or if you're on the selling side of the future, you're gambling that prices will go down and you collect money today. Again, way too complicated, way too um, involved, and just you're going to have to babysit this thing a lot uh, for the average investor. The average investor is not going to have any idea how to even go about buying a commodities future. So it is something out there. There's probably a handful of farmers that, that dabble in livestock futures and things like that just because of that. that's a business that they're in. It's a way to hedge your bet against, uh, you know, maybe if you got 100 or 200 head of cattle or something like that, and you want to take advantage of today's price prices, thinking beef's going to go up because of fertilizer costs, grain costs, which there could be a lot of truth to that. But ultimately you are, you know, you're using leverage to kind of gamble on which direction prices are going to go. So again, I don't think it's probably something we should spend a lot of time on. It is a way to, that's not stocks, but that's probably not for the broad audience here. So as the supply and demand for that commodity changes, such as corn or grain, or whatever, so does the value of the contract. So you could make a lot of money, but you could also lose a lot of money too. So we're going to give that one a thumbs down. Next one, vacation rentals. How do I get into vacation rentals? You know, Jeff, I think you chop off your right arm and you hand it to somebody because that's about how much uh, vacation rental properties are going for right now. But in all seriousness, uh, vacation rentals can be a very lucrative thing to buy. But as with almost anything else, including the stock market and almost any asset, it depends on what you pay for it Right. as far as how successful that investment is going to be. And trying to chase the vacation rental market here and buying rental properties in this environment, I think, could potentially 
eventually come back to bite you. But, uh, you know, you do have liquidity concerns here. You know, obviously you can't dismantle the front door and sell it for your income. Right. You know, if nobody's renting your vacation home, I think, you know, it can be a good way to get some income. But you also have to deal with things like, you know, if it's not local, you're going to have to hire somebody to manage it for you. So, again, it's certainly not a bad thing, but it is quite a bit more involved than the average person is on average, I guess, in their investment portfolio. So we're talking about things like Airbnb, buying a home and renting it out through Airbnb. And boy, if you've been a landlord and you know, you're know uh, you having to deal with tenants that move out after a year, consider this, you've probably got a new tenant about every week with an Airbnb vacation rental. So consider that. So we're going to give that one a thumbs down, I think. Next, when cryptocurrencies, uh, crypto was all the rage, but it can go up and it can go down, right? Yeah, you know the thing about cryptocurrency is is I'm I'm kind of like you know Charlie Munger is Warren Buffett's partner in business and has been you know they're both in their 90s now and not questionable you know how much money they've made and how well they've been investing and he just says that it's massively stupid is what he calls <laughs> cryptocurrency. So here's the thing: uh, a lot of people said it was going to be the new uh, way to uh, a store of value to replace gold and you know there are some diehard crypto guys out there for sure. Have there been people that made money in cryptocurrency? Absolutely. Have we ever been invested in cryptocurrency? Absolutely we have, but it's not something we're going to go all in. In fact, for us, when we had cryptocurrency, we put in about 1% of a portfolio. And when it grew to be 4 or 5% of the portfolio, we liquidated and we haven't been back since. Right. So it can be something, you know, that might, you know, carry some weight in the future. Or if we'd have another huge downturn, you know, it might be something where a person would buy in just a, a percentage or two, you know, to watch it run back up. But it's way too volatile and not good for a retirement portfolio. And I've heard the crypto is really good only for real gamblers. But as you said, you've got to know when to get in and then you can't be greedy. You got to know when to get out. So crypto could or could not be a part of your portfolio. I'm going to put that a thumb sideways, being that you guys have used it before in the past successfully, but you've only put in a very, very small percentage. We're talking about ways to invest that do not involve the stock market. The next one is municipal bonds. So munis, as we like to call them in the industry, can be really good depending on your income level. There's a lot of people that hold municipal bonds that make like thirty or forty thousand dollars a year in income, and that doesn't make a lot of sense because you're accepting a much lower rate of return trying to save money on taxes when you already aren't paying any taxes, pretty much. So we see that a lot, and that always makes me scratch my head. However, if you are a very high income earner, two hundred thousand, three hundred thousand plus a year in income, municipal bonds can be a good way to uh, offset some of the taxation there. However, it is important to understand that municipal bond income, while it is not taxable, it's tax exempt on the federal level and mm. on the state level if it's a, if it's in the state that you're uh, buying it in. While all that is true, it does push up the tax bracket on the rest of your income. You know, there can be other tax considerations as well. So, you know, definitely talk to your tax guy uh, before you start buying these. But basically, municipal bonds are kind of like corporate bonds or government bonds, but they are tax exempt and typically pay less interest than those others. And again, these are our opinions. We're not suggesting that people buy or do not buy any of these things, but where are we going to put municipal bonds? Are we going to give it a thumb sideways or a thumb up or 45 degree angle? We're going to do a little sideways on municipal bonds. Okay. The only winner that we have here so far has been corporate bonds. Let's move on now for private equity funds. What do you think about those? So I think we should lump in the next two kind of together. So private equity and venture capital to the average layman are kind of the same thing. They're not really the same thing, but the idea is you have a non-publicly traded company that you want to invest in or a firm that invests in many non-publicly traded companies. So the idea here is to get in before the big explosion of the IPO in the stock market. So, you know, you get in earlier. The problem with getting in earlier is, you know, you have a less chance of success of that company at that point. You exchange that for a higher potential reward. I would say the vast majority of people listening to this show, certainly the ones that are close to retirement, are probably too conservative to want to invest in something like that. Most of the private equity and venture capital stuff is also going to require that you are an accredited investor to get involved with, which means you have to have you know a couple million bucks or a whole bunch of income to get started in there. And so that kind of 
precludes a lot of people that we typically see in the office here. Not everybody, but there's certainly nothing wrong with private equity or venture capital. But like the stock market, private equity and venture capital are in the stratosphere on valuation right now. They're very, very expensive as far as what people are paying for a lot of these pre-IPO companies. Yeah, the other thing to remember here is when you're in a private equity or venture capital, you have no control over getting your money back, you know, and you don't have any say in what happened in most of these cases. You're just, well, you know, these guys look pretty good, and so we're going to give them some money and... You know, if they do something you don't like, you really don't have much recourse. Now, if they do something dishonest, that's different. But something they don't like or they just don't manage it and they lose the money, you have no recourse. So I'm going to point towards my shoes with my thumb on that one as far as that investment goes, even call it an investment. Private equity funds and also venture capital. Let's wrap it up now. The lucky 13th one, ways to invest that don't involve the stock market is going to be annuities. So I think annuities are, there are some very, very good annuities out there. There are also some very, very bad annuities out there. A lot of that comes down to how much money they allow you to make or how much they charge you in fees. So if you can get a lower fee annuity and one that will allow you to make money and give you some principal protection, those can be good. There's a lot of different types of annuities. We don't really have time to go through them all here uh, on the show today, but I would just say with annuities, they can be very good. They can be a very good way to fund retirement, help you get income, things like that. A lot of people don't know that any pensions out there are funded with a type of annuity called an immediate annuity. And so annuities can be really good. I know there's a lot of people that have had bad experiences with them. Most of that comes from either they didn't get a very good annuity or they didn't understand what they were buying. And so, again, I would give them a thumbs up with the asterisk of we need to be careful what we buy and how we buy it. So corporate bonds and annuities, they get a thumbs up. Everything else gets a thumbs sideways or a thumbs down. We've been talking about ways to invest that do not involve the stock market. And if you've got questions about our topic, we invite you to call us and request your complimentary retirement review. It's just a friendly conversation with Randy or Jake that'll cover a wide range of topics based on your individual situation so that you can proactively adjust your financial plan to address your retirement journey and any blind spots that may hinder you from reaching your goals. Again, no cost, no obligation, no judgment. Randy and Jake will meet you where you are. That number is 417-889-7233. 417-889-7233. This one call could make all the difference. You can also request your complimentary plan online at floydfinancialgroup.com. You're listening to Show Me the Money with Randy and Jake Floyd. My name is Jeff Shade. Glad you could join us this week. We'll take a quick break when we come back. We'll talk about the pros and cons of target date funds and more when our show continues here on 104.1 FM KSGF, where Springfield comes to talk. People of the Ozarks, step away from the fishing pole and prepare to be shown the money because we're back with more straight talk and honest answers with Randy Floyd, Jake Floyd, and Jeff Shade. Welcome back, everybody. This is Randy and Jake. You're listening to Show Me the Money. And in this segment, we're going to be talking about the pros and cons of some relatively new things that we've been seeing in 401ks the last few years called target-dated funds. And Randy, I think a lot of people do not realize that they have target-date funds, but they just don't know it. Is that about right? Right. You know, a lot of these, they won't call them target-dated funds, but as I say this and start to go down this path, people are going to go, Oh, yeah, I own those. So a target-dated fund is one of those things that says, hey, I'm retiring in 2030, so based on my age and stuff, this is where I need to invest. So plop, I put my money in the 2030 fund, or I put it in the 2025 fund, or I put it in the 2050 fund. Whatever my year of retirement is is how I'm supposed to invest that money. Now, the premise and the theory behind this is I don't have to have a PhD in the stock market to go out and invest my money in my 401k this way. It keeps it very simple. The other thing that it's supposed to do is it's supposed to diversify us between stocks and bonds and give us the right risk tolerance. It automatically will rebalance itself. So if market outgrows the bond market or if the bond market outgrows the stock market, they go back and periodically will rebalance those for us automatically inside that account. And finally, they'll say, well, you know, this is a good outcome and a good way to invest for long-term investors. So they build these portfolios based on a risk tolerance 
but they also base it on a historical look back over our shoulder and really divide out the assets between stocks and bonds, if you will, inside, which are bond mutual funds and stock mutual funds is really what they are for the most part, layered in there. They do that based on looking back over our shoulder for the last 40 years. Now, the challenge with that is we had a very unique thing happen from 1981 through August of 2020. We had continually falling interest rates. Now, a lot of people may recall that when we have falling interest rates, the value of our bonds is always more today than it was yesterday. So now we're in a situation where we have rising interest rates. So now any bond we buy today generally is going to be worth less than what it was yesterday as rates are rising. So we have a few things happening right now that are making these things where they just really don't hold water. And if you go out and uh, you look at them as compared to the S&P 500, especially if you're a long-term investor, you know, if you look at the 2025, the 2030, the 2035 fund, and you compare those two over the same three, five, 10 year period, you're not going to be very happy with your target dated fund. I'll just put it that way. So the big negatives I would say to it is number one, it's a one size fits all, which is probably never good. That's kind of like me trying to wear your pants, Jeff, and <laughs> you, trying to, you trying to wear mine, right? Yeah. It just me knowing the height difference, that's incredibly funny to me, actually. <laughs> to take them up uh, a little also, bit. Yeah, my inseam is like 29. Oh, so. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah mine, so I think mine is so th- anyway, 32 or something like that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, anyway, I have a little stack up at the bottom there. So anyway, you know, it's one yeah, of those things yeah. where you have limited control. Sometimes there's a lot more fees in there than what you would like for the target dated funds. I guess the, the biggest thing I would say is, you know, it works great for 401k companies, companies that sponsor 401ks for companies because it makes it simple. The education portion of that's very simple. Uh, it keeps them out of fiduciary trouble. And so we just know that at the end of the day, you're really not going to get your just desserts inside a target-dated fund. Most of the time, you could do much better by diversifying with market index funds or mutual funds and bond funds separate to the target date. So, Randy, you mentioned a few of the pros and cons. Let's go down a little more in detail for some of the pros. The first one, of course, as you mentioned, was simplicity. They're really quite simple, aren't they? I think simplicity, as well as the administrators that have fiduciary obligations to these 401ks and the companies and the employees, like it because nothing gets missed. They don't set it and forget it and then one day wake up upset that they lost money. So I think simplicity, because they don't have to mess with it, and they are certainly simple. You know, again, I think, like we talked about before, there's roughly 60% of all people that have qualified plans have a target date fund. So that's the vast majority of the funds are actually in these. So again, I think simplicity is definitely a pro. I think, you know, another one is diversification. You know, you can own one position and your money's spread out over thousands of different positions, including bonds, stocks, potentially international stocks, depending on what life cycle fund, a target date fund are kind of interchangeable terms. But yeah, those types of funds, they automatically rebalance is another pro. So as far as as time goes forward, they start rebalancing themselves according to how close that they are to that target date, like Randy was talking about. They are professionally managed. So you have some kind of manager, a Fidelity, a TIA, CREF, or whoever it might be that provides the life cycle fund. You know, they have a team of managers that manages that along with the indexes inside and tries to look at risk tolerance and all that kind of thing. So it's a way to get that. And I think probably the biggest one is if you're a long-term investor in a 401k, that's another pro is is it's it's good for a, a long-term approach where we just put money in there and we just kind of forget about it until it's time to retire. So target-dated funds, they could be an excellent choice for investors who may not have the time or the knowledge to actively manage their portfolio. So those are the pros. Let's talk about the cons again of target-dated funds. So the cons to uh, target-date funds are many and extensive, uh, as you may have gotten from Randy's first (laughs) explanation there, but there's no customization inside these funds. You just buy one or you you buy a different date on the fund, potentially if you want a different risk level, but that's about it. You know, they're designed to be automated, and because of that, there's not a lot of customization. There's also not a lot of control. There's no control, really, over what they invest in. They're going to do their mandate, and you're going to go along for the 
the ride if you're in a target-dated fund. But probably the biggest thing that I have as a problem with these is the double-dipping fees that most of these companies are doing. Not all, but a lot of these companies, they charge a fee on the target dated fund wrapper. So they say, hey, you know, this is worth 35, 40 basis points or, or four tenths of a percent, let's say, in a fund. Some of them are higher, like like seven tenths of a percent. And then they go inside and what they actually buy inside is a bunch of that company's other mutual funds. So like if it's a Vanguard fund, they say, hey, here's the Vanguard 2030 fund. Oh, and by the way, when you open it up, what it's holding inside is the Vanguard total stock market index and the total bond market index. And, and so they're charging fees on the top and they're charging fees fees inside. And so over time, uh, especially over a, a 30 year career, that makes a huge difference in how much you're paying in fees and therefore overall performance. So that's probably my biggest kind of pet peeve with target data funds is they're not very transparent with how much you're actually paying in fees. And it's a little bit disjointed the way it's managed because some of these funds, they just say, well, this is the 2030 fund. And so we're going to put these different amounts of our other funds. But those other funds are not communicating to each other. The funds that are inside are not taking into account what each other manager is doing. So there can be some overlap and there can also be unintended risk based on how they're functioning around that. It's kind of a one size fits all approach. And again, like Randy had said earlier, I don't know that that's a great idea. In fact, I, I'm trying to remember something that was one size fits all that I have a favorable memory of. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, for the most part, it does not work yeah. out, at least not as well as it could, right? So right. I can get a hat that's one size fits all, but I can promise you, I have a very large melon on my shoulders. <laughs> it, is, it is a big head. And the average person right. puts on my hat and it instantly goes right over their eyes. Um, <laughs> Um, and so, uh, and vice versa, if I, I can't hardly buy a hat out anywhere because the hats aren't big enough. So can I buy a hat? Yes. Can I get it on my head? Maybe. You know? And so that's, <laughs> that's the issue with one size fits all, right? But like uh, Randy said earlier too, you potentially are over diversified in some of these funds where you have, you're invested globally in equities and in stocks and diversification is good against risk, but it's also good against return, right? I mean, why would I want to diversify if I could just buy the one stock that's going up the most, right? And the answer is, I don't know which stock's going to go up the most, which is why we need diversification. So some diversification is good, but too much can limit returns. So overall, Jeff, I think target-dated funds, I think there's a better way to do it if you have somebody who's paying attention or an advisor to help you weigh in on what investments inside your 401k, 403b, 457 plan, or the like. If you have somebody to ask and you have somebody to guide you, there's better ways to do it where you'll pay less in fees. So if our listeners have questions about target-dated funds, once again, call 417-889-7233 to get in and sit down with Randy and or Jake and talk about your individual journey to retirement and whether target date funds could be a part of your portfolio. If you want to hear the show again, don't worry. We're also a podcast. Just go to wherever you get your podcasts and search for Show Me the Money with Randy and Jake Floyd. You're going to get this show and all of our past shows so that you can stay on top of your wealth and your journey to a successful retirement. Randy, Jake, we're out of time for this week. I want to thank you for your time, but most of all, thank the fine people here of the last bastion of sanity, Springfield, Missouri, for joining us. For Randy and Jake, I'm Jeff shade get out have a great weekend we'll talk again next week with another edition of show me the money right here on 104.1 fm ksgf where springfield comes to talk the information provided in the preceding program is for educational purposes only and are not intended as investment advice for any individual or entity all information contained herein believed to be from reliable sources however we make no representations as to its completeness or accuracy the opinions expressed are subject to change without notice and do not constitute financial legal or tax advice. Please consult your financial professional before executing any financial strategy. Financial planning offered through Floyd Financial Group, LLC, an investment advisor registered in the state of Missouri.